Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. That famous split infinitive from Star Trek, to boldly go, becomes a clever pun as the title of Tamar Haspel's new book, To Boldly Grow. The author is a James Beard Award-winning columnist for The Washington Post and creative food writer. She's also a lot of fun, as you'll hear later this hour when Tamara Haspel tells us how to find joy, adventure, and dinner in your own backyard. First, on March 27th, the noted... Atlanta photographer Lucinda Bunnin passed away at the age of 92. She's been called the godmother of photography in Atlanta and patron saint of photography in our city. The larger-than-life arts philanthropist helped establish the High Museum's collection of photography. She was the subject of seven published books and the recipient of several honors, including the Nexus Award and the Georgia Governor's Award for the Arts and Humanities. Gregory Harris is the High Museum's curator of photography. He joins me now via Zoom to talk more about Lucinda Bunnin's legacy. Greg, welcome back to City Lights. Thanks for having me, Lois. Lucinda Bunnin's career began after she turned 40. What inspired her to pursue the art form? Well, she, she got started in photography actually on a, on a vacation. She was friends with a number of artists in Atlanta and she um, was connected to the Atlanta College of Art. And one of the photography professors there encouraged her to bring a Super 8 movie camera along with her on a family trip to Peru. <clears throat> and so she started filming you know, what she was seeing, what she was encountering. Um, she was, you know, working, you know, in, a, in an observational documentary mode, just kind of figuring out, like, how to see the world through through pictures. And so that, that really kicked it off. The footage that she brought back really impressed um, that professor at the Atlanta College of Art, and she started enrolling in classes there. Um, and was kind of off to the races from there, bringing a camera wherever she went, you know, kind of figuring out, you know, what, what, what she could see, what was interesting, how she could turn it into a, into a compelling photograph. 
Her first book was published in 1978. Movers and Shakers in Georgia contained a collection of photos but and made of impressive figures, including Coretta Scott King and a young Maynard Jackson. How did that book change the way people viewed Georgia's leaders and influencers? It was, you know, it was, she started making those pictures right around the time that Jimmy Carter was elected president. You know, she was a member of, you know, the, the social and political elite of Atlanta. She was very politically active. And so she was part of these, these circles of people who were influencing politics in Atlanta and then eventually national politics as the Carter administration came into power. But she was also looking at um, cultural figures in the city at the time. So her, her goal was to really show that, you know, the South wasn't this slow backwards place that it was, you know, that particularly Atlanta which had been the heart of the civil rights movement and was now um, the seat of power in, in, in Washington, you know, as the, as the Carter administration, and, you know, he brought along people from, from Georgia and Atlanta with him, um, that this was a, you know, a progressive forward-looking city. It was the center of a lot of business in the South. Um, and she, she wanted to make sure that the, the nation knew that, you know, Atlanta was, was really where it was happening. And these were the people that were making it possible. And so she would go to, she would go to parties, she would go to rallies, she would visit people at their homes and she would photograph these interactions with people in a very uh, spontaneous kind of fly on the wall way. And so you got this, you know, this real life picture of, you know, how, how decisions were made, how culture was built, how politics was playing out uh, through these photographs. Great. Greg, I noticed you said when she was making photos. She used that phrase, making photos, rather than taking photos. I thought about how in German it translates to making a picture with your camera. Why make versus take? I think photographers and you know photography curators, you've always had a bit of a chip on her shoulder about the medium. You know, it hasn't always been widely accepted as, you know, as a legitimate form of creativity, as a legitimate form of fine art, you know, particularly at the time when Lucinda was getting into photography, when she was making pictures and she was collecting photographs in the beginning of the early 1970s, you know, the, the, the art world didn't really accept photography at the time. And so there was a sense that photography was easy, that it was just this, you know, mechanical process, you know, you, you, you point the camera, you push a button and you send it off to a lab and everything is done. And there's really like, as an artist, there's not really anything to do with photography. Um, and so, you know, this kind of taking is, I feel is a very passive verb, whereas making, you know, is active. And so she, she always used that term that she was making a photograph, that there was a lot of intention, there was purpose, there was, you know, a distinctive vision behind and the process of seeing photographically and making photographs. Oh, I can see now why that expression is preferred. And thank you for the explanation. How did Lucinda Bonin help establish the High Museum's photography collection and first dedicated photography gallery? So not long after Lucinda started uh, making her own pictures, she also started collecting, you know, the way that a lot of uh, photographers, you know, artists in general, photographers in particular, that they they learn about the medium is by looking at other pictures. And so she actually started building a collection of her own photographs that informed her thinking as a photographer. And she befriended important gallerists like Lee Whitkin in New York, really helped train her eye. And then as the the collection built, she started she started giving money to the High Museum. 
Um, she started donating photographs. I mean, we have we have letters in our archive from the mid 1970s when she was just starting to give funds to the high to the the director at the time, Goodman Vintel, who was not totally on board with the high collecting photographs. And Lucinda was adamant; she was really tenacious that the high should have a photography collection. The photography was going to be this major this major force in in the arts. And she wrote very stern letters of demanding that the high use this money that she was giving to buy to buy photographs. I think in the case in that case it was was Lewis Hine, you know, an early documentary photographer. She was just a driving persistent force. You know, not it wasn't that she just had she had money that she put toward the cause. She was vocal, she was uh, persistent, and she had a you know a very particular idea idea of what was important in photography and wanted to see that play out in the High Museum's collection. So later on, she put together a group of other photographers, curators at the High, dealers, and they started with a, you know, a concerted effort to build a collection that would eventually be donated to the High. So that was the first photographs were given to the museum in, in 1983 as part of the official um, but in collections so around the time that the Richard Meyer building opened was when, you know, the real photography collections are, was very formally established with, you know, with these first gifts from the, from the Bunning collection. But she had this very expansive idea of what photography could be. It wasn't just documentary photojournalism or, kind of, you know, purely expressive modernist photography. She was interested in other forms of photography that pushed the medium that used experimental processes. Um, she also, she, started, she donated photographs from all the way from the 19th century up through at the time, the 20th, the 20th century and continued until, you know, soon before she died, photographs from, you know, just the last few years. So she was really covering a lot of ground uh, with, with the collecting that she was doing. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with Gregory Harris, the High Museum of Arts Curator of Photography. We've been discussing the life and legacy of noted Atlanta arts advocate and photographer Lucinda Bunyan. She passed away last month at the age of 92. Greg, I'm still back on Goodman Vitell the High Museum director in the early 80s not being on board totally with considering photography an art form. That seems so recent. It really wasn't that long ago that that photography became accepted by, by major museums. I mean, you know, Museum of Modern Art was collecting photographs back in the, the 40s and 50s, but most other museums didn't start establishing their collections until the 1970s, around the same time that the High was doing it. So there were not there weren't a lot of other places to look to to say, you know, this is this is important, this is legitimate. We as you know, the the bearers of you know, the the cultural patrimony of you know of the world we should be the ones to to champion this medium there the, no not many other places were, were doing it so lucinda was you know right at the leading edge uh, and it, it was it was an uphill battle because a lot of people who were in positions of power and in cultural institutions just disregarded it but lucinda you know she saw how important photography was and she made sure that the people who were making decisions that they that they were listening and that, that they were following what she believed was important from her collection donated to the high, what photos or series of photos do you think are most outstanding? 
some, some of the most important pieces that we have in the High's photography collection, particularly from the, the modernist period, came from Lucinda. So one, one great example is we have this incredibly beautiful, very rare platinum print by Edward Weston of a palm of a palm trunk. It's a very spare, elegant composition. But probably one of the most notable series that we have in the collection is Nicholas Nixon's Brown Sisters. So beginning in 1975, uh, a photographer from Boston, Nicholas Nixon, started photographing his wife and um, her three sisters. And he made a picture every year and he has continued to do it since then. But Lucinda started collecting this series about one year after he started it. The story that Lucinda told me was that she saw the first picture and she said, oh, well, that's, that's really nice. But if you made another one and then another one, then I think that this could really be something. And so she bought the picture every single year. And it's been, it's been going on now for over four decades. And it's this incredible study of the bonds of family, of aging, the passing of time. She had it hanging in her, in her bedroom for a while. And the series got so long that it filled up an entire wall. And she started wrapping it around the doorway to her bedroom because it, 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 just, it just kept going and going and going. So it was important to her to elevate other photographers by collecting their works and donating them to the Bunnen Collection. You mentioned Edward Weston and Nicholas Nixon. Some of the prints in the collection are by photographers whose names are famous, Sally Mann, Ansel Adams, to name just two. How does her collection reveal a diverse range of photographic styles? I think one of the things that's most distinctive about the Bunin collection was that it's, it's not just, uh, you know, a, a gathering of the usual masterpieces. You know, it has some of those major names that you mentioned, Ansel Adams, you know, Cindy Sherman, John Baldessari, William Eggleston. But of those major artists, it's not always the iconic image. For example, the Edsel Adams that we have from Lucinda is of some factory pipes and container tanks. And she was very, she was very insistent that she didn't want to have the same pictures that everyone else had. So with a well-known photographer, she would often pick a more unusual photograph. But then she was always, because she, because she was an artist herself, she was connected to a lot of other photographers and was always supporting the work of other photographers. So we have many pictures by people that are not household names. You know, they may be well-known here in the Atlanta photography community, people like Elizabeth Turk or John Menapace or Leah Janes Carp. You know, she wanted to make sure that the, that the, Bunnen, just, the Bunnen collection didn't just repeat everything else that every other museum had. So she wanted it to have, you know, the, the distinctive flavor of Atlanta and of the South in, mm. in the collection as well. Let's talk about her art. She liked to experiment with her own photography, sometimes leaving slide film outside to see how the elements would change the negatives. How did her perspective set her apart from other local photographers at the time? Well, I, I think many, many artists sort of find a way of working that, that fits them, and they, and they keep doing that. And they you know, maybe find slight variations here and there. But Lucinda never stayed in one particular style. She was working as a documentary photographer at times. She traveled all over the world and brought her camera with her photographing you know, other societies, other cultures. Um, but then she would experiment 
at home quite a lot. You mentioned the series Weathered Chromes, and she was digging through her archive of family family Kodachrome slides and noticed that they had started to change a little bit through exposure to heat. And so she decided that, you know, why not just see what happens if we leave them out in the elements, you know, collaborate with nature a little bit. And so she put them out on her deck for several weeks. They got rained on, you know, sediment collected on them through the air. They, they melted a little bit from being out in the heat and the created these kind of surreal swirly patterns throughout the images and they, you know, mixed the, you know, the, just kind of the chance elements of the natural world with the photographic process. And she was doing things like that all the time. She would, you know, often expose her prints to heat or mess around with them in the dark room. She also collected, not just photographs, she collected all kinds of things. And she would make um, unusual still lifes through these, you know, using these elements that she had, she had collected. But she never, she was never static in the way that she worked. She was always trying to find a new way to, to push her practice as an artist. I spoke with Lucinda Bonin in 2018 about her book, Gathered, which contained images of artwork she collected over the years. She often photographed items that were overlooked, like a typewriter she found in a dump next to a hiking trail. How did these photos give forgotten or quirky items, new life. I think that there's you know, a really strong connection between collecting and the act of photographing, going out in the world and finding something interesting and kind of making note of it and pulling it back for, for other people to look at. And, and that's you know, a theme that ran through, through Gathered. It's a, it's a really remarkable series for somebody to be doing you know, toward the end of a very long career as a, as a photographer. She had a setup in her garage using old you know, drop cloths from, from you know, painting the inside of her house. And she would use that as a backdrop and then she would arrange marbles that she had found, or you mentioned like a typewriter, but also sculptures by Lonnie Holly, you know, and, and other artists. And she just create, would create these conversations and juxtapositions between these, these objects. And it was you know, a, a record of her relationships with other people, of, of, of objects, uh, these, these stories that, that she could tell through these things that, that she had gathered and put together. We have the Atlanta Contemporary Art Center, thanks in large part to Lucinda Bonin. Greg, what can young Atlanta artists and photographers learn from her legacy? Sorry, I'm getting a little choked up here. I think what Lucinda is such a great example of is how as an artist you know you can't just wait around for someone else to give you an opportunity you have to make your own opportunities you know if, if you if there isn't a space that's interested in showing your work make your own you know if there you know if, if people aren't paying attention you know speak louder make great work and make people pay attention you know she was just an, she was she was an artist who was also an incredible advocate and she banded together with with people from all over the city, from all over the region, to really make sure that that Atlanta and the South in general had a, a robust cultural scene. It didn't just happen on its own. She she made it happen, and she she was just you know an incredible an incredible force and made sure that everyone was kind of was you know rising up with her as as she was as she was working and that you know it wasn't something that was just about her that it was about really building a strong community and making all the wonderful things that are happening in Atlanta so much more so much more visible and accessible for everyone in the community 
Gregory Harris, the High Museum of Art's Donald and Marilyn Keough Family Curator of Photography. The celebrated Atlanta photographer and philanthropist Lucinda Bonin passed away recently at the age of 92. You can find out more about her life on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, the author and James Beard award-winning columnist for the Washington Post, Tamar Haspel. Her new book, To Boldly Grow, teaches us how to find joy, adventure, and dinner in our own backyards. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. That famous split infinitive from Star Trek, to boldly go, becomes a clever pun as the title of Tamar Haspel's new book, To Boldly Grow. The author is a James Beard Award-winning columnist for The Washington Post, and creative food writer. She joins us now via Zoom. Tamar Haspel, welcome to City Lights. Lois, I am delighted to be with you. Oh, the pleasure is mine. In your food column for the Washington Post, titled Unearthed, you've written about food from many different perspectives. To Boldly Grow is a memoir that encompasses your work. What did you boldly take on in 2008? Well, in 2008, it didn't seem very bold at all. In fact, I'm basically chicken when it comes to trying new things. But I married a man who is a doer. And when we lived on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, the thing he wanted to do was put a vegetable garden in whiskey barrels on the roof of our condo building. And that didn't seem like such a big step. So it was easy for me to buy in. I thought, okay, well, this is be interesting. What's the worst case scenario? We don't get any vegetables. I, I could be in for this. And then we did it. And I discovered that growing food has this compelling 
sort of power that the tomatoes that we grew on the garden, you know, and I'm not going to swear it in a court of law, but let's face it, they were the best tomatoes the planet has ever seen. And that gave me momentum when we left Manhattan and we moved to Cape Cod to do all of the rest of the things in the book. What adjustment did it take for you to leave that urban bustle of the Upper West Side of New York City to a coastal community? It was an adjustment. In fact, I would call it a lifestyle U-turn. We went from you know, the Upper West Side where you can walk to the grocery store and just about any place else and there's excellent public transportation and the people you run into on the street are all speaking different languages. We went to a place where we bought a tiny house on two acres of woods and it's not rural, but it's kind of the next best thing. And because I was a food writer, the difference between our Upper West Side lifestyle and our Cape Cod lifestyle manifested itself in all the things that I could do with food. And so when we got here, I looked around and thought, all right, well, what kinds of opportunities does this offer? And the answer was just all kinds of things. And that's that's sort of how we started this whole challenge. It was when we first got here and it was literally December 31st. And I said to Kevin, my husband, do you think we can go a whole year and eat one thing every day that we grow or hunt or fish or gather? And okay, you don't know Kevin, but he is- (laughs) I feel like I do after (laughs) this book. What a doll, how lucky are you? I am. He He's madly supportive of everything I do. He's completely adventurous and can do. And he goes to me, not a chance. I'm like, not a chance? Who who are you? And what have you done with Kevin? <laughs> and so just as he talked me into the rooftop vegetable garden, I talked him into this challenge and we were off to the races. Tamar, Renee Zellweger's famous line from Jerry Maguire, you had me at hello. I love that movie. (laughs) Oh, me too. And that line came to mind early in your book when I read in the prologue, (laughs) quote, I've never been much of a doer, a reader, a reader all my life, a writer since age 30. I wanted to know something about everything so long as no actual effort was involved. Give me a book about octopus intelligence and I'll feel no need to scuba drive. Okay, so how did you get to the point where you're not only growing your own produce, but raising chickens, foraging, and even hunting for your own food. Because let me tell you, I'm the reader. I think the short answer to that is gradually. (laughs) And that's kind of the lesson, at least that I took away from this, is that yeah, if you had told me when we lived in Manhattan that within, I guess, six or seven years, I would be hunting deer uh, you know, I I would have laughed you off the Upper West Side. And I think that the key, if you want to make any change in your life or in yourself, is maybe to start small. 
And so we did start small. That first vegetable garden was that little initial step. But then when we got to Cape Cod and we planted a garden here, I figure, okay, well, if I can plant a garden, maybe I can build a chicken coop. And if I can build a chicken coop, maybe we can raise a flock of turkeys. And if I can raise a flock of turkeys, maybe I can hunt a deer. And all along the way, some of the skills were transferable, but what was really transferable was the confidence. Because every time you do something, it builds you up. It makes you feel stronger and ready to tackle the next thing. And, and so along the way, I discovered the secret to successful self-improvement because I, God knows I try so hard to be a better writer, but it's really hard to improve at something you've been doing for a long time. The way to improve is to try something you've never done before because that first iteration has you learning more than any other subsequent iterations. So you just have to go out and do a whole bunch of things for the first time each. Okay. Your enthusiasm and that Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney, let's go put on a show <laughs> tone that comes through in your voice is palpable in the book. And it's so encouraging to the likes of folks like me. Would you talk about what you describe as firsthand food? So... When we started this, even way back in New York, when I ate those first tomatoes that were mm. the best ever, and I felt like this food was special because I was invested in it. I had gotten dirty in service of it. I had done heavy lifting. I had tried new things. And then I put this food on the table for my family and my friends. And I felt differently about it than I did about other food. And since then, I've met a lot of people who get food in one way or the other. And some of them are gardeners, some of them are fishermen, some of them are hunters. And I always ask them the same thing. Does that food feel different? And so far, every single one of them has said yes. And no matter if it's a fish or a deer or a mushroom or a tomato, it feels different. Yet there was no name for the category of food that you get with your own two hands, even though they it had this strong common bond. So I had to make one up. <laughs> and so we started calling it firsthand food in our house because that's what was important about it was that you got dirty. And so it's firsthand food is anything that you have rolled up your sleeves and gleaned from the landscape around you and put on the table for dinner. All right. You need a copy right there. <laughs> Trademark, at least. The book is divided into several parts. Would you describe the structure? Well, it was funny because when I was putting the book together and I was asking myself, okay, well, what's the arc here? What's how How can I take a reader on this journey? The obvious answer is, well, chronological. Start with me in Manhattan and planting a garden, and I'll take you through all the way to, you know, when we, we finally built our wood-fired oven so we could serve all of these foods to, to friends and family. But because of the nature of the undertaking, chronological 
also essentially broke down by enterprise. So first we did gardening, then we did chickens, then we started fishing, then we got turkeys. So so it broke up cleanly into these chapters and I each one is sort of self-contained to talk about doing one thing or the next. And for anybody who's actually interested in doing those things, you know, I, I hope there's a little bit in the book that can help get you started. But also I think they all link together to tell basically a story of of becoming competent. <laughs> and you you have tips in a slightly gray background squares, rectangles, on helping readers along those who want to start engaging in the activities you've come to love. That part, I felt like the food writer in you was coming out because I felt like I was getting these personal instructions from a cookbook author. And it it is a little like that. And it's funny because the book it's sort of the demon spawn between memoir and how to. And there's no activity in the book that you're going to learn enough about in the book to just go off and do it yourself. But hopefully there's enough information to just get you started. But what I really want the book to do for people who are interested in doing these things is build confidence and make you feel like you don't have to be an expert to go out and do this. You can just go out and start, you know, go go to YouTube, watch some videos, join a local club, and none of this is rocket science. But I think there's also a part of the book that is for people who aren't going to do any of this stuff, because it's really about food, but it's also about what doing something new does for you. Lois, do you remember when Marie Kondo's <gasps> book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up? Yes, you do. Yes, you? and it just, of course, induced guilt immediately all over <laughs> me. I think, oh my <laughs> God, you know, say thank you to all my tchotchkes and set them on fire. <laughs> no, that's not going to happen. But I admire her. See, so did I. And I got the book and read it, even though I don't have a stuffed problem. I got the book because I wanted to see what all the fuss was about. And the thing that really captured my attention was that Marie Kondo says that, okay, after her clients do this thing and they get rid of all the stuff in their house and they organize things, they were able to go on and ask for the promotion or get the long overdue divorce or lose those few last pounds or some other personal challenge. Ah. And I said to myself, okay, well, why is that? Is it because your house is clean? <laughs> and eventually the, the light bulb went on and it's no, it's not because your house is clean. It's because you have taken control of a problem that is in your purview to solve. Exactly. Pro that's right. And problem solving makes you strong. So for people who aren't interested in actually going out and building a chicken coop, I think that there's almost more there for you than there is about building the chicken coop because, well, hopefully, I hope people are entertained by the book and just enjoy reading it. But the message is bigger than that. It's that humans thrive on solving new problems. Well, there is a lot that's entertaining, too, in addition to that self-help. 
If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is the author and James Beard Award-winning columnist for The Washington Post, Tamar Haspel. There's a whole lot of fun wordplay. Here are just a few examples. (laughs) Shiitakes happen, chicken out... My two favorites are Chapter 7, One Fish, Two Fish, Start with Bluefish, and the title of Chapter 16, Poultry in Motion. Speaking of poultry, Tamar, would you please elaborate on this sentence? Chickens are actually vicious little dinosaurs. And anyone who's ever had chickens knows exactly what I'm talking about. Because a cartoon chicken is this, you know, benign bird clucking around the barnyard, eating insects, scratching up dirt. And they are like that until you bring snacks that they particularly like. And then they will battle each other to the death for them. (laughs) And okay, getting bit by a chicken it's not a big deal, but it's not pleasant either. But if you're holding something they want, they'll let you know. And so, yeah, I, I believe in here, I, I'm wandering into areas that I am not an expert in, but I believe birds are the nearest relatives that we have to dinosaurs. And you certainly see it when you feed the chickens. One of the more serious aspects of your chronicling the experience of life on Cape Cod is when you decided to undertake hunting. Yes. For many of us, taking a gun in hand, killing an animal, it's frightening. And for some of us, it's unthinkable. How did you overcome that? Again, I think gradually, because I had a lifetime of you know, being team gazelle when you watch Wild Kingdom. (laughs) I had never wanted to kill an animal, but I've always been a meat eater and I've always tried to be a responsible meat eater. And I think that the single most responsible way to eat meat is to take an overpopulated animal that's doing ecological damage as white-tailed deer are in many parts of the country and put it on the table. And the only reason I didn't want to do it I thought was that I was a sniveling weenie and I don't want to be a sniveling weenie. The whole nature of this enterprise was to push my limits a little bit. At least that's what it ended up being. Now it's not how it started. And I decided this was a limit I was going to try and push. And it was very difficult for me, but because it was difficult, it was also extremely gratifying. And to this day, if you ask me about a skill that I'm proud of, and you know, like I said, I try really hard to be good at my craft, but the thing that I'm proudest of is that I can shoot field dress and break down a deer. And you know, on the one hand, it sounds ridiculous because 200 years ago, any 10 year old could say that, but it was hard for me. And doing something that was hard for you and doing it successfully, it's what 
confidence is made of. And you make such a cogent argument for the fact that meat eaters, many of us, don't think about the responsibility, what behooves us when we actually sink our teeth into a delicious hamburger. And in your case, the overpopulation of deer. As I was reading and thinking about your eventual mastering of hunting, I thought of the respect and the regard that actually goes into making use of every part of an animal that because of the supermarket lives most of us lead, we just don't stop to think about. I mean, does a hamburger look like the cow that's taking up so much of the water that we so desperately need? And and does that chicken breast look like a bird? No. It doesn't. And I, I think we have probably over the past 100 200 years, gotten progressively farther away from the source of our food. And in lots of ways, I think that's a good thing. That's what modernity has built. And it has freed up people to be, you know, dentists and radio hosts and writers. (laughs) And none of us could do our jobs if we still had to provide for ourselves by, you know, the kind of subsistence agriculture that sustained humanity for thousands of years. I'm in favor of a modern food system, but it has its downsides. And I think the fact that we have gotten so removed from the source of our food and, and our inner pendulum has sort of shifted away from plants and animals and toward boxes and bags. And that has been to our detriment. And I think that one of the advantages of going out and getting your own food, and it doesn't have to be hunting, it can be a hydroponic herb garden on the windowsill. I think it it can move our pendulum back because plants and animals are the foods that humans thrive on. And we've lost track of that for, I think, in some ways, exactly what you mentioned, that we're creatures of the supermarket and the things we buy either come wrapped in plastic in a little styrofoam tray and don't look like they're animals of origin or, you know, in the center aisles, they come in the boxes and bags with the bright colors and the exciting punctuation. And food originates as plants and animals. And I think there's a benefit to spending time with those plants and animals. Absolutely. Tamar, part of the fun of your book is being in on your life with your husband, Kevin Flaherty. You write lovingly about Kevin's wedding gift to you. Would you share that story? It's kind of embarrassing, but I guess if I didn't want to tell the story, I shouldn't have put it in the book. (laughs) So we got married, I think, about three, actually, I can tell you exactly when we got married. We got married three years to the date of our first date because we figured that way we'd only have one date to remember. And we usually forget anyway. We're not good (laughs) about things like that. And for our honeymoon, we went to Arizona for a few days, actually to golf school. We do play golf. And when we came back and we walked in to the apartment that we'd been living together in on, on West End Avenue and 71st, there was this 
beautiful Viking stove installed where my old crap stove had been. It had wrapping <laughs> paper and a giant bow on it. Kevin had gone all over New York oh. to find the one high quality stove that fit in that 19 inch space because it wasn't a standard size. He'd gotten our super to install it while we were gone. He got the paper and the bow and he never let on a word of it. And it was the most wonderful wedding gift. And I got him nothing. It didn't even occur to me that one's own wedding was a gift giving occasion. And so not only did Kevin get me this wonderful wedding present, he didn't resent it that I got him nothing at all. And, you know, I knew he was a keeper before then, but that was just another data point. Well, I think you gave him your essence, yourself for life. And I'm sure he thought that was more than enough. I do think the stove is, is such a sweet gift and clearly portends your journey of the move from New York to Cape Cod. I guess this brings us full circle in terms of being in on this wonderful life you and Kevin have created for yourselves on Cape Cod. What would you say was the ultimate impact on your relationship? That's an excellent question, and I'm trying to boil it down. And I think we both learned how to work with the other. And the larger lesson there was that reasonable people do things in different ways and you just have to relax about it. And, you know, Kevin and I, our brains work completely differently. And if there are 10 ways to do something and you ask each of us to list our top five, there will be no overlap. Kevin always wants to solve problems in different ways from the way I want to solve problems. And the way we navigate it is, okay, well, sometimes it just makes sense for one person to be in charge. I call it the competent spouse doctrine. The person who's best at solving the problem should just solve the problem and the other person should butt out. But of course, sometimes problems benefit from the best efforts of both of us. And I guess we sort of we learned to tell the difference. We learned to tell which was which problem. And there's something that it's, I don't know that I'm going to be able to put my finger on it, but we have worked side by side on so many different projects. There were some projects that he was already good at and he was teaching me every now and then. There was something that I would teach him. But we have done physical work side by side, we also had an oyster farm for a long time. And there is something intimate and compelling about finding the rhythm of a physical job and doing it seamlessly, doing it competently and efficiently with someone you love. And I I think the people who have done it will know what I'm talking about. And it's outside the realm of, 
you know, the intellectual world that I inhabit most of the time. And it was new and fresh. And I know I keep using the word compelling, but that's what it was to me. Tomorrow, I had no idea I was going to be referencing Jerry Maguire again until <laughs> I, I just heard what you said. But with Kevin and you, you complete each other. And that's such a special aspect of reading your memoir. Thank you so very much. It's wonderful to know that you are as endearing in person as you are on the page. Well, thank you. Tamar Haspel, author and James Beard award-winning columnist for The Washington Post. More information about her new book, To Boldly Grow, is on our website, wabe.org. Coming up, our series of artists in their own words, speaking of the arts, today featuring Mike Stasny, amplifying Atlanta. This is 90.1 WABE. City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. My name is Mike Stasny, and I create Mike Stasny artwork, uh, or as I like to put it, the products that you need. I didn't have much choice in becoming an artist. I come from a pretty honest lineage of eccentrics, uh, which means that I'm pretty eccentric. Uh, So the vocation of art just kind of happened because, uh, well, it's my MO. I'm motivated and inspired by the same things I was at four, uh, but now at age 40, I'm able to do those boyish escapism things on a much larger scale. I suppose the one thing that made me unique with my upbringing, though, is my grandfather was a taxidermist. So at the same time I was playing with Legos, I was also uh, playing with dead things. I never really chose to call Atlanta home, but I've been here for 10 years and been staying busy. Uh, I suppose if there's anything that Atlanta has done to influence my work, Uh, It's by having a great community of people that work really hard at whatever creative output they have while also trying to make a living at it, and that has kept me here. My favorite place in Atlanta to see new art would be the studio spaces of artists I like or friends of mine. In many cases, it's both. Uh, You get to see the work in its natural habitat before it reaches a museum or cleaned up gallery space. If the moment takes you, come and see my artwork at Underground Atlanta. You could also check out my Instagram at extremely underscore Michael. Our series of artists in their own words, speaking of the arts, today featuring Mike Stasny. More information is on our website, wabe.org.
You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Alison Arngrim, the former child star who portrayed Nellie Olson in Little House on the Prairie, stops by. Ahead of her upcoming one-woman show at Outfront Theatre. Plus, we'll hear about the Atlanta premiere of The Wolf at the End of the Block, currently on stage at Theatrical Outfit. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.